have in my hand? The powerful Word of God. It can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now look at your neighbor and say, I don't really care. Not really. I, I want you to say it to you. I don't really care. And why is that? Because we're starting a series on apathy today. Apathy. We're going to be looking in the book of Malachi this month. Great book. If you haven't spent much time there, it's a great book. I want to ask you one question today as we start. Are you going through the motions? Don't answer out loud. Think about it. Nate cautiously approached his pastor one day. and He said, I'm not sure what the problem is, but I feel empty inside. Now, the pastor was taken aback by this. Because any time there was a call for assistance or help at the church, Nate and Nancy were the first to respond. They were there. They were standing up. They were being counted. And so the pastor asked him, why do you feel like you're just going through the motions? He said, well, I'm just doing church. I'm helping people. I'm attending worship. But it just doesn't energize me anymore. I'm tired of just doing stuff. I'm living a lifeless religion, Nate said. The Jews living in Jerusalem were just going through the motions in their worship. When God called Malachi to arrive on the scene, Malachi, a man that's shrouded in a lot of mystery, not much known about him, his name means my messenger. But he came with a vigorous, clear-cut personality. And he began to speak, strongly opposing anyone who treated the temple and the things of God with indifference. We are coming at a time in our culture when Christians are going to have to become what we say we are. Are we or aren't we? It's easy to say, not necessarily so easy to live and walk. But he was a powerful speaker against the indifference of people and the complacency of people. Carelessness in worship offended Malachi. He wanted to restore genuine worship, the kind of worship to God based on a true relationship with God. He was a fearless reformer. He did not hesitate. He was not embarrassed to say what he needed to say to the people of God. He addressed the Jews who had returned to their land after living in exile for 70 years, they had rebuilt the temple and reestablished the worship of God. And on the outside, everything appeared okay. But inwardly, inwardly, a cancer of complacency was eating away 
at their commitments. As God's final spokesman, prior to John the Baptist, there was going to be a 400-year span between Malachi and John the Baptist. He challenges people, and he challenges God's people. And the book of Malachi is structured as a seven-cycle argument between God and His people. It's different from the other prophetic books. The book of Malachi takes the form of a dialogue or an argument God speaks, the people answer back. God tells the people how he expects them to live based on his original concerns. Malachi begins by telling them that God loves them with a tender, affectionate, and unconditional love. And I would say that to you today, that God loves you with a tender, affectionate, and unconditional love. But in return, our only reasonable response is to worship him with devotion and sacrifice, we would think. Anything less would be classified as hypocritical. But unfortunately, their worship had become insincere. They were just simply going through the motions. So God speaks through Malachi to these apathetic and complacent people, calling them back to serious worship. In chapter 1, God tells them and us what He wants from us in worship. And the antidote to going through the motions in worship is to do what God expects. Let me give you some, several of them. Number one, God expects us to show great reverence. One of the difficulties in church today is that we don't reverence God nearly enough. come into church, a time for church service, and we define worship as the music that's being played. Well, that's just one piece of it. The greater piece for worship begins when you walk into the room. Worship, when you come into the place where you're going to worship God, needs to be one that is quiet. And reverent. But too often, we don't approach it that way. Look what he says in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name. In the original word, uh, Hebrew, the word honor literally means to be heavy. To be heavy. So when you honor someone, it means that you treat them as a heavyweight in your life. If you were, it doesn't matter what your party affiliation is, it doesn't matter what your political view is, if President Barack Obama walked into our church service today, we would show him the respect due the president position of the United States of America. I would. I may totally disagree with anything that he says or feels, but I need to respect who he is and who he represents. And so I need with God. Could it be that God wants me to come in and to spend some time reflectively thinking of him prior to my worrying about how long is this service going to go and how much, I, boy, I've got this to do and that to do. 
Honor means I'm going to treat him as a heavyweight in my life. Someone of extreme importance. Someone of great significance. Someone who is large in my life. I watched the uh, Olympic after event interviews and they're interviewing the, the three other teammates of Michael Phelps when they won the 4 by 100 medley last night. And she asked all th- the other three before she got to Michael Phelps how it felt to win a gold medal with him. And they all, all three of them said, I would not swim the way we swam without him on the team. They showed him the honor due him. 22 medals. 18 gold medals in his career as an, as an Olympian. Well, yeah, preacher, but he got hung up in drugs last year. Yeah, I know. Gee, he's human, isn't he? I wish he didn't do that. But my, what an accomplishment from an athlete. And yet, how often do we not even give God the honor due Him? When God says in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, He's not just saying to obey them and respect them, but He says treat them as though they are truly significant to you. At CIY this year, that came powerfully home to us. We had a room full of young people that that hit them square between the eyes. Some were there without fathers in their home. Others were there with fathers in their home. Those that left with dads at their house who care about them, take care of them, and and, and communicate with them and work with them. Man, there should be a greater appreciation for that dad. And those that don't have that dad at home realize what they're missing. But I'm telling you one thing. They all left there knowing that they have a heavenly father who loves them and is in their corner for them. And we all have that, by the way, do we not? And you can respect him because he says, I will never, ever leave you. He says, I'm father, I'm master, I expect honor, I expect reverence. Don't treat me with contempt. Far more significant than the gifts on the altar is the heart of the worshiper. If you don't give a dime or a moment of your time or any gift that God's given you to give, You don't give any of that, but you don't worship God. You don't give Him your heart. What good is your gift? What good is your gift? Harry Ward Beecher, at one time, one of the most famous preachers in America. People from all over the nation would travel just to worship at his church on Sunday. And there was one Sunday when he happened to be gone and the visiting minister got up to preach and people began to realize that uh, Henry was gone. So some of the people started for the door. Well, the minister got to the pulpit and he said, May I have your attention, please? All those who came to worship Henry Ward Beecher, you may leave. But if you're coming here to worship God, we invite you to stay. Because see, it's not who's speaking. It's who's being spoke of. People come to worship for a lot of superficial reasons. To hear certain preachers. I know that's why you come weekly to hear this fabulous preacher. Appreciate it. However, I have known that when my son preaches, the attendance is higher than when I'm preaching. But take that aside. I know you may come to watch your children perform. 
maybe visit with friends, to fulfill an obligation, maybe to enhance business opportunities, to see, hey, well, let's see what everybody's wearing, right? But only one reason to come to worship is acceptable, and that's to give honor and praise to Almighty God. Worship is not an attempt to entertain worshipers or really to stir their emotions. Worship is not an attempt to manipulate worshipers' minds and hearts. Worship is not an attempt to indoctrinate people. Worship is, first of all, an attempt to focus our attention on God, to honor God. That's why we come. That's why we should come. So God expects great reverence, and then next He wants our best response. He made his allegation to the priests, the professional worshipers. They should have known better. They were responsible for the people's obedience. And now the priests reply with a question beginning at verse 6 in Malachi chapter 3. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar, you ask, how have we defiled you? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. Can you see God is a little bit concerned about the children of Israel and the way they're behaving and the way they're worshiping? What if he were to speak directly to us today? Do you think he would share similar words to us? Well, I'm sorry to say he is sharing similar words to us. The priests were accepting not just the second best from the people, but the worst. They were bringing God's sick sheep, sick goats. They were offering worthless animals. The Old Testament law required people to offer God's sacrifices from their flocks and their herds. If they had an animal that was no good for breeding and wasn't going to fetch much at a, at a butcher shop, they would then bring it to the Lord. And God says, I don't want those tainted sacrifices. We no longer offer God animal sacrifices because Christ became our sacrifice. The unblemished Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God, He fulfilled the sacrifice for you and me. He's borne that penalty of sin. Like all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament bore the penalty of the people's sin. But God is quick to tell us that in response to what His Son has done for us, the only reasonable response is to give back to God our very best. A young brother had an older brother who was his baseball coach, and that usually doesn't work out very well in the league. But the older brother always expected his team to play their best, to go all out, and the younger brother remembers remembered one time when he wasn't really giving it his all and the older brother coach came up to him and he put his arm around him and he says, hey, you can do better than that. You can do better than that. God says to us, you can do better than that. You say, better than what? Better than blemish sacrifices, better than leftovers. The Bible presents three standards of sacrifice. The first one is give the best. A minister grew up on the mission field and tells about a time his parents paid $100 for a shipment of clothes from the States. And when they opened the 
crate, they discovered that all the clothes had the buttons and zippers removed. (laughs) So they spent money on a shipment that was worthless. I wonder how God must feel this, and if he doesn't feel the same way. Do you, do I, do we give our very best? The second standard is that give to God first. God is never supposed to get leftovers. Many years ago, a pastor and his wife were new at a church, and they gave them a pounding. Now, that's a throwback. Some of you remember what poundings were. You know, they'd, when the preacher's family move in, they'd bring a pound of flour, a pound of sugar, and a pound of sausage, and they'd put it in the preacher's house and get the parsonage all ready to go. And so the first night that the preacher and his family are in the house, uh, they opened up the cupboard and the shelves, and they saw canned goods just uh, everywhere. They opened the refrigerator, and wow, it was overflowing. And uh, some folks had even left craft items lying on the kitchen counter that they could put up in their new home and make them feel like they were at home, and they were very thankful and appreciative. But then they began to place those craft items around the house, and they noticed some things about them. They had missing pieces. Or they were broken. So then they went and checked out some of the items in the refrigerator. Well, they'd already passed expiration date. Then they went to the cupboard and looked at the canned goods, and most of them even had rust on the outside of the cans. While many of the church members donated good quality things, most of them gave things that were destined for a garage sale or the garbage. They gave leftovers. They had two, the preacher's wife had two simultaneous emotions. One was of great joy for the generosity of many people, and the other was great sadness for getting all those unwanted discards. I wonder if God often feels the same way. Third standard is give what costs you. Giving should be sacrificial. God wanted to offer a sacrifice, uh, excuse me, David wanted to offer a sacrifice to God. He wanted to buy a man's threshing floor to build an altar to God. And the man offered to give oxen for the offering and wood for the fire. Instead of looking for a shortcut, David said this in 2 Samuel 24, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price, for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. What does it mean to give less than the best? What does it look like to give God last? What does it mean to make gifts that cost us nothing. It's when I spend an hour and an evening reading the USA Today, cover to cover, and then spend five minutes before I fall asleep reading God's Word. That's offering God leftovers. It's when we bring to our careers our best energy, our best talent, our best motivation, but when it comes to serving the body of Christ, we either sit on the sideline or we look for something that requires the least amount of energy. It's when we spend a lot of money on ourselves for a summer vacation, but when it comes to giving God an offering, we look at the budget and say, well, here's what's left over. It's when we watch an OU or an OSU score a touchdown and leap off the sofa in jubilation, but in worship, we sit passively with our hands in our lap. Oh, I'm not going to get too excited. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Raise your hands for Jesus. That's just where we go right here. See, we're down below the chairs right here. Nobody can really see maybe the fingertips, but if somebody says, stick them up, what does that mean? Surrender. And so when you surrender, don't you just go like this? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) You got them way up here, don't you? Well, I'm telling you today, Jesus is saying surrender. Surrender. 
Don't be afraid to do this. Don't be afraid to raise your hand to Jesus. Don't be afraid to surrender what you think you have and control into the Lord's hands because He's got it already. It's when we love our kids so much, there's nothing that we wouldn't give them. But if we're honest, our heart doesn't beat that fast for God. We make no apologies in this church when we challenge you to bring your best. I stand before you and say God deserves minimally the first 10% of your income. That's what Scripture teaches. I make no apologies when I say get involved in ministry and service here. Roll up your sleeves. There's always something to do. Always something to do. Use the talents and gifts God's given you. Somebody asked me the other day, said, well, I made a decision to go ahead and do something. I hope I didn't step on anybody's toes. You can't step on toes that aren't here. I'll wait for you to join me. There you go. There you go. Worship God enthusiastically. Reminds me of the older lady who had no affinity for contemporary worship. She was complaining about a particular song used in the worship service at her church, and a fellow worshiper said, Hey, why? That's not a new song. It's a very old song. David sang that song to Saul. The older lady replied, Well, now for the very first time I understand why Saul threw a javelin at him when he sang. All too often we have a sentimental, grandfatherly view of God. We think that He winks at our sins and no matter what we give Him, He says, Oh man, that's awesome. That is awesome. Thanks so much. Why don't you look again at Malachi chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. What God says, And now ask for God's favor. Will He be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will He show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of hosts. Is God impressed with what you're bringing to Him? God says, shut the temple doors. It's better not to come to church. It's better not to pretend to be spiritual than to bring me less than your very best. If you don't want to bring it, don't come. Why come? Why come? Just so somebody can see you? Just so God may say, wow, ooh, ha, he's here. God expects great reverence, our best response, and next, the highest regard, our highest regard. The quality of one's worship is in direct proportion to one's concept of God. The higher our view of God, the better is our worship of God. Back in verse 6, God's complaint against the priests was, were that, was that they despised God's name. They despised it. And they were the priests. They were the spiritual religious leaders and they despised the name of God because of their behavior. Well, he makes even a more powerful statement in chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. For my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because of my name will be great among the nations. In verse 14, for I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. God expects people to tremble in fear at his name. And yet today we laugh at him, we mock him, and we spit again in his face because of the way we live. Because of the way we carry ourselves. 
God's name represented His person, His character, His very nature. His name will be great. Why? Because He's the great King. He's the Lord God Almighty. Twenty-three times in Malachi, God calls Himself the Lord Almighty. Often the word Almighty is translated hosts. And that means a great number of armies. You see, God, Lord Almighty, has all the hosts of heaven ready to do what He needs them to do. Jesus had his, at His beck and call the hosts and the armies of heaven to come. All He had to say was, Come! But He sat silent while they pushed the thorns on His head and drove the nails in His hands and His feet. We're just going through the motions when we don't recognize God's greatness as we worship. We're going through the motions when we allow the extraordinary to become ordinary. We're going through the motions when the mystery of worship becomes familiar comes familiar. If we try to do something different in this worship style and structure, I love to look at your faces. You're, you're panicked. If I tell you to hold the communion cup and the bread when it comes and we're all going to take it together, you're all going, we don't do that. I've only had two people ask me, how come the communion table is up on the stage and not on the floor? Where's it written in the Bible that we've got to even have a communion table? I wanted you to see it. On the floor, you can't see it. So I put it up there. Actually, it was after a wedding, and I just didn't want to lift it down by myself. There's the truth. <laughs> you want the truth? There it is. But after I said it there, I thought... I think I like it there. So, those of you that had a questioning in your mind, that's why. So if you want it on the floor, you come move it on the floor. It's heavy. I'll warn you, the top comes off, so don't grab the top and lift it down. <laughs> Trying to give you a heads up. When we experience great worship, we need to ask ourselves, what moved us? Was it the familiarity of the songs, the number of people participating, or did the Holy Spirit point us to God who is great? God expects great reverence, the best response, our highest regard, and next our warmest response. The Jewish people have become bored with their worship. Look at verse 13, chapter 1. You also say, look what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring stolen lambs or sick animals. You, you bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands? Ask the Lord. By the way, when you see in your Bible the word Lord spelled in all capital letters, it means God, Yahweh, the Father. When you see capital L and lowercase O-R-D, that's the Adonai, that's Christ, that's the Messiah yet to come. And you see here he's using it interchangeably and also, also mentioned them both at the same verse. They were bringing cheap sacrifices, blemished animals, lambs covered with sores, blind lambs, lambs that no respectable shopkeeper would accept. Their sacrifices cost them nothing. They gave as little time as they could. They did their dirt, their duty and nothing more. They worship became ritualistic, humdrum, mechanical, and familiar. 
If we try a new song, some of you, it bothers you. I know. I'd like to take you to CIY. They don't sing any of them that we know. But by the end of the week, they're screaming them. The only reason we don't like new stuff is because we don't know it. How many of you have a new car in the last 10 years? Can I see your hands? Or let's say a different car, not a new car, but a different car. You mean you're not driving the same car you did 10 years ago? Now, some of you might be, okay. I, I, I understand. And sometimes we would like to get a different car, but we just can't afford to get a new car. I understand that. But isn't it funny that we'll get another car and we've got to retrain ourselves how to use that car? Especially if they're a new one. The new ones will talk back to you, by the way. If you get in the car and say, hello, it says, hi there, how are you? Where would you like to go today? Well, I'm not sure. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't know. I mean, you just carry on this conversation. You never left the driveway. But I've never seen anybody get in a new car and go, you know, I, just, I don't like the car talking to me. I'm not going to drive this car ever again. Never, never. Get out of the car. And you stay out of the car and you never get in it again. Baloney. You spent $94 million on that car. You're going to get in it. And you bought it at $19 million percent interest. Yeah, I know. You'll never pay it back until you're 554,000 years old. I got it. How would you describe your worship? Do you come to church and say, how long is this going to last? How much singing are we going to do? Are they going to do new songs? I don't know. I don't... And that preacher's long-winded. hi yeah, yeah, yeah. Robbie Zacharias, one of my favorite writers, he said, when, men is, when man is bored with God, even heaven does not have a better alternative. Wow. George Malone tells the story of a big Gothic cathedral in his hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia. The cathedral was, has colorful stained glass windows and was donated after the Second World War in honor of men and women who gave their lives. The, the windows illustrate pictures of soldiers. One day he overheard a little boy asking his mom, Mom! Who are those people pointing at the stained glass windows? And she said, well, those are people who died in the service. Well, Mom, was that the early service or the late service? <laughs> now, I don't want you dying in our service here, but God expects great reverence, great best response, the highest regard, the warmest response, and then lastly, the grandest result. When our focus is on God's worship, when we honor Him, giving Him our best, exalting His great name, offering Him our warmest worship, our lives will be changed. Why do these young people come back from CIY so enthused, so on fire? It's because they've, they've been in the presence of God. They're drawn into the presence of God. And that's why we need to come ready to be drawn into the presence of God. They know what's fixing to happen, and they come and they're ready. You need to come ready every week. You need to walk through those doors saying, God, speak to me. We pray that prayer every week. Do you just say it to say it, or are you really praying it to pray it? God, speak to me. If you'll do that, if you'll start to do that, you'll see some transformation happen. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. And now ask for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. You see, with God's favor comes great benefit. In worship, we not only honor God, we help ourselves. We should meet God's command by honoring Him, giving Him our best, exalting His name, 
sincerely worshiping him because he meets our every need. We engage power for our weaknesses. Worship provides the opportunity for worshipers to tap God's strength. We renew purpose for our days. Worship provides stability when life is up or even when it's down. Worship is not for God's benefit. It's for ours. The smallest Indian reservation in North America belongs to the uh, Mataponi tribe in uh, eastern Virginia. The reservation consists of only 125 acres, and the Mataponi tribe signed a treaty with the Virginians in 1646. The treaty provides for an annual visit by the tribe to the governor of Virginia to renew their pledge of loyalty. They have kept that practice to this very day. Every year, the Mataponi appear before the governor of Virginia. They bring him gifts of fish and fowl, as prescribed by the treaty. They, de- they declare their loyalty to the governor of Virginia. And that's really something like what we do when we come to church. We bring our gifts, and we declare to Christ, who's our Lord and Savior, that we love him, and that we honor him, and that we respect him. So what are you bringing? Are you just going through the motions? Father, I ask you this morning to stir in the hearts of your people that are here today. Father, help them to understand and to see that what they say and what they do matter. Father, help them to understand that you are a God that wants all of us, not just part of us. And you want our very best, not second best, not leftovers. So God, today, God, today, where we draw a line in the sand and say enough's enough, I'm ready to take a stand for God, and I'm going to be on the side where God needs me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We always offer an invitation for those that need to know Christ for the very first time. Those that want to join the church right here, we'd love to have you. Those that just need to pray, just need somebody to pray for you. We offer anything that we can to help you in whatever way possible. If you've never become a Christian and are interested in that, we sure want to know about it so we can sit down and teach you. And if we, after teaching you, then help you get to that point of ready for decision. If you're an immersed believer in Christ and you know Christ is your Savior and you want to call this your church home, uh, that's all that God requires from the Bible is that we be immersed in Christ. That means we're connected to the body of Christ. And if that's confusing to you, I'd love to sit down and teach you uh, related to that as well. Because it's important that we understand the decisions we make and why God wants us to make them before we make them. But there may be those that just need somebody to pray for them today. They're carrying a heavy burden and they just need somebody to help with that burden. Well, we'd like to help you with that too. We've got some great people that love to pray. And we'd love to get them around you and pray for you because we know God can do great things. So, if God has touched your heart in some way today, you're ready to not just go through the motions. Maybe you're ready to get active and get more active than you've ever been. Let's do that today as we stand and sing together this hymn of invitation.